connection is not just about the external. Connection is very much an internal game as well. For a lot of people, the reason why they have success but a lack of happiness is because there is such a disconnect internally between their belief system around what success is, but then their internal sort of heart system around what makes their heart sing and dance and do all of those nice things, right, that make you happy. And that's where each one of those little elements have different roles to play and different parts to play. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers, and leaders. With thanks to our partner, Connect Now, Elevate brings you the best tools, thinking, and strategies to elevate your results. For more information about how Connect Now can make moving easier for your clients, visit connectnow.com.au. And to get new episodes of Elevate directly to your inbox, sign up at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. Here is your host, Samantha McLean. Hey, hey, everyone. It's Sam here. Whether you're a seasoned real estate professional or just starting out, finding ways to boost your performance is essential in this fast-paced industry. My guest today is going to offer some invaluable insights on that. He's an experienced auctioneer himself, plus with over a decade of coaching agents, he understands firsthand what it takes to accelerate success in real estate. His approach, though, goes beyond just the technical skills to focus on critical emotional intelligence and relationship building skills with clients. I'm excited today to dig into his proven coaching strategies and tools that can help any agent unlock their full potential and perhaps give you a little sneak peek into his new podcast, which launches next week. So Andy Reid, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, amazing. How have you been? It's been a bit of a crazy year, 2023. <laughs> just a bit, just a bit. I mean, I think personally, professionally, economically speaking, I think everybody's crystal ball's broken by now, I reckon. And I think most people can, uh, I think anybody with an economics degree is kind of wondering why they spent all those tuition fees, right? Because there's nothing with any real substance behind it that's going on right now. It's very, very random. Yeah, it is. And I, like I described it as a roller coaster a couple of weeks ago to Fiona Blaney. And she said, you know, I don't think it's a roller coaster. I think it's more of an amusement park to sort of get that analogy going on with different rides and different things and different stands and things like that. And it's in state on state. There's normally, you know, normally, Melbourne, Sydney tends to dance to a relatively similar tune. Um, Queensland uh, does its thing. Adelaide tends to, until recently, no one's really paid too much attention to, but now it's starting to really perk up as a genuine area of interest real estate-wise. Then Perth on the other side of town, which is doing you know 10% returns and all this sort of stuff, is kind of on its merry little way, right? So it's very, very particular depending on where you are right now. Yeah, it's been certainly a heck of a year. And I guess, you know, like moving into, like we're getting very close to the Christmas period. Have you started thinking about the run into Christmas at all? Thinking about the run into Christmas, I'm thinking actually about the first section of next year because whatever's going to happen for the rest of the year, it's going to happen now. I mean, because we get to November and everybody sort of really starts to pick up the pace because it's kind of like when you book a holiday. On the week leading up to you going away, for some reason, everybody wants to speak to you or get to know you or whatever, when reality is 
that's when we're probably at our most productive because we know we've got a hard deadline. And so I think lots of people now are really focused on that hard deadline at Christmas. So if you're thinking about planning and how that's going to work, we've really got to be thinking, all right, so how we're filling our boots for the start of next year and then heading into that March, April time. Obviously, I mean, this whole chat around interest rates, we obviously had our interest rate rise in the November announcement. I think it would be committing political suicide if they did one in December, but you never know. But if they don't do one in December, then February, March, you would think that something's going to happen. Now, at the coal face, it's been interesting. Down here in Melbourne, there's been certain parts of the market where it's not really changed much of the MO right now. But I think next year, when, you know, when the distraction of Christmas, shall we call it, goes away, that's when we could have some fun. And that's where it could really be a bit of a test, which, you know, if it was easy, it was, it'd be boring, to be fair. Yeah, well, that's, that's why we do it, isn't it? Because, exactly. you know, like, we all love a bit of a challenge in this industry. So um, speaking of challenges, so mm. you are launching a podcast called High Performance Humans, which I just alluded to a little bit in the intro. Tell us a bit about that. Right. So high performance in a stereotypical sense, and when you look at how it is characterized on social media and whatnot, it tends to be something where only a certain few can achieve it, right? There must be something that's different in their DNA that helps them to be as high performing as they are and so on and so forth. And then you hear a backstory, which is of ruin and personal disaster or, you know, whatever it is. I personally feel that we need to shine more light on the fact that high performance is accessible to everybody. And when you talk about high performance and that word success, we need to understand how we are to define it in our own world in order to be able to map out what high performance looks like for us. And now there's four key elements in my humble opinion as to what constitutes towards high performance. And that's success is only an element of it. But there's also influence, connection, and happiness. That last one being a pretty important one because there's no point having any one of those four without having the other three. There's no point having all the success under the sun if you're miserable as sin. And you look across lots of autobiographies and famous people and all that sort of stuff. And generally speaking, and I've experienced my own version of this in a small way, in my own little micro way, it generally comes with some sort of nightmare or disaster at some point. And I don't know, man, I think, I don't know if you need to go through that. You always hear about adversity and challenges and gifts coming badly wrapped and all that sort of stuff. And beyond the stuff that we can't control, like your health and, and whatnot, the things that we can control, I don't know if you do need to hit disasters. I think if you can learn to prevent overcure rather than cure, then you might, you're probably going to be better off. Yeah, it's definitely, well, I know, you know, that I think the disasters in my life have made me stronger, certainly. But I was just wondering then, as you were talking, you know, is it possible to be a high performer without a few setbacks? That's a really interesting question. It really is, isn't it? And look, you could very easily argue that, you know, you need to understand the bad side of things in order to appreciate the good side of things, right? But when we talk about connection in particular, Connection is not just about the external. Connection is very much an internal game as well. And for a lot of people, the reason why they have success but but a lack of happiness is because there is such a disconnect internally between their belief system around what success is 
but then their internal sort of heart system around what makes their heart sing and dance and do all of those nice, uh, you know, buzzy, fluffy things, right, that make you happy. And that's where each one of those little elements have different roles to play and different parts to play within this whole high-performing human thing. And I think that if we can hopefully broaden people's horizons with my little venture and get them to see that, it one, it's accessible to them, high-performance is accessible to anyone, I, I, I will be adamant on that. It doesn't just take a certain person. Anybody can achieve high performance in their own world. But also, if you can learn and educate yourself via other people's disasters, then maybe you can put the connections together internally, provide yourself with a level of influence both externally and internally, and then allow yourself to be self-motivating. Because when you're happy in what you do, you're intrinsically self-motivated. And with real estate agents, a lot of the time, they really struggle to find that connection piece that drives them forward to go do the monotonous stuff that we all know is required in order to maintain a consistent level of success. And that's what I'm saying. It's all interconnected. So hopefully we can shine a bit of light on that. Yeah, amazing. And I mean, look, you were gracious enough to have me on one of your episodes. So first of all, thank you for that. But secondly, you asked me a tricky question right at the beginning. So I'm going to throw that back at you now. It's it's so funny me answering the questions, you know, because I much prefer to be asking them, you know that. (laughs) But that is define quickly what is a high-performing human. I want to know what your definition is. For me, a high-performing human is a human in flow. That's my definition. That's my interpretation of it. I know that when I'm in flow, Everything is right in the world. Everything. Because when I'm in flow, I am fully connected internally. I'm connected externally with whoever I'm broadcasting to. The level of influence that I have in that particular situation is at an absolute premium. It's weird. Like, for example, auctions. So this is it's by becoming an auctioneer that I've been on this whole bloody journey in the first place. For me, when there's all this chaos going on, I've got sunshine and rainbows going on in my head. That's me in flow. That's me performing at a high level. And thankfully, that's that's what transpires, right? So a high-performing human is a human in flow. That is a good definition, actually, and I think better than my definition. Yours was awesome. And, you know, for those of you that haven't listened, please make sure you do tune in and listen to that because that one blew my socks off. It was the first one I listened to, and I was like, oh, shit, this is going to get a little bit deeper than I thought. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, that sort of says that you're pretty good at asking the questions. So where can people find High Performance Humans and when does it come out? So it launches on Monday, the 20th of November, but depending on when you listen to this, it may have already launched. You'll be able to find it on Apple. It's been broadcast via Omni, so you'll be able to find links to it on all of my socials and and on my website and whatnot as well. And of course, I'll be pushing out episodes left, right and center and helping people to hopefully move a little bit forward with this whole topic. Amazing. And so you've graciously agreed to come on to this show now. So we're going to dig into a few high performance strategies, hopefully. But I just want to sort of backtrack a little bit because there might be two people in the world that don't know who Andy Reid is. So we better fill them in. First of all, you don't mind me saying, I feel like, you know, I'm listening to Jamie Tart sometimes, you know, for people that are familiar with Ted Lasso, they'll go, yes, yes, now I know who he sounds like. He definitely sounds like Jamie Tart. um, (laughs) Tell us how you got to Australia and how you got into real estate. 
So I came to Australia for that magical thing called love. No other reason, really. I was actually supposed to move to Toronto. Uh, I had a visa application to move the other way from the middle of England. And then I met an Aussie lady who enamored me tremendously. And we worked together in England in the hospitality game. And and I moved over uh, 11 months later to start a life with her. And off the back of that, my beloved father-in-law, who who has since left us, unfortunately, he owned a real estate franchise in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. So I spent the first part of my life in Australia. I was actually worked for Vodafone, and they were looking at sponsoring me. And when I was going started through the process of that, my father-in-law turned around and dinner one time and said, hey, Reedy, I think you'd be a pretty good real estate agent. So I said, okay, if I'm crap, bin me, and there'll be no hard feelings, but we'll give it a go. And it turns out I wasn't too bad. It took me a little while to work it out, though, work out the game for me. I almost put myself in a loony bin in that first eight, nine, 10 months, 100%. I got three sales in my first week, and I thought I was bloody the best thing since sliced bread, and then got next to nothing for the next like three, four months. So yeah, that first level was a real test of my own personal beliefs and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, but then since then, that was in 2010. And then since then, I got thrown into the auctioneering world in 2012. Again, my father-in-law, who I owe so much to, he said, really, I think you'd be a good auctioneer. And I had a background in drama and public speaking and stuff. So yeah, he threw me into my first auction on two weeks notice and a whole load of practice outside Cranbourne Race Track in Victoria. Uh, where no one can hear your screen. And um, yeah, I fell in love with it. And it didn't have anything. I know it's easy to say or harder to believe. It didn't have anything to do with the attention. In fact, it was the opposite. It was a sense of freedom in my mind and in my heart and in my soul that I never thought I'd find. I never found it before. I think the closest I got to it was when I was running vodka bars in London and making people happy and getting them hammered and whatnot, right? And hopefully not cleaning up vomit and blood and stuff. So yeah, and it was a drug unlike anything else I've ever had. And then since then, I've become obsessed with the craft of auctioneering. I was a salesperson, then a sales manager. Uh, I was sort of doing between 60 to 90 transactions a year, which was fun. And then started my own auctioneering firm in 2017, which has been going since then. And then last year, or this year, sorry, jumped into bed, metaphorically speaking, with Justin Nickerson and the Apollo Auctions team and become the director of Apollo in Victoria. And start my own coaching business, having done a stint for two years as the Century 21 head of training for Australia New Zealand. Yeah, gosh. I mean, you've done so much. I just want to grab onto the auctioneering thing because I'm always fascinated by auctioneers. They have a helicopter view of what's going on, you know, like underneath because, well, you work as a coach with a number of agents, but how are you finding things in Victoria at the moment? Like, you know, from a real estate perspective, what is really going on? from that helicopter auctioneer kind of level? It's becoming increasingly obvious where the line is between the ones that can and the ones that say they can. That is becoming very, very straightforward. Like I said earlier, like I always think that it's my favorite auctions are the ones that aren't easy, are the ones where I have to think strategically and that route from A to B isn't a straight line. But having said that, I am finding myself having to be strategic quite a lot more often than what I perhaps should be at times, which is, look, it's not a bad thing. It's what I get paid to do, and I'm totally cool doing that. But I think with agents, I think there's a lot of them that are really starting to realize, which is an amazing thing, that they need to do more than just the transaction. They need to. 
And there is a realization coming around because of that, which is incredible. It's so good to see that people are finally starting to realize that they can't just go around and tell people what it is that they do in order to sell a property. They need to go that other level deeper if they want to, one, protect their fee or enhance their value and make sure that consumers can understand that value, which is interesting. And technology, right? This is the, this is a really cool thing about technology. Um, talking about AI and, and whatnot before we kicked off and copyrights and all that sort of stuff. The amount of technology that's kicking around now, it's giving agents so much more time to be human again, which is amazing. So good. And there's lots of people that are starting to tune into that, which is brilliant. It's only a good thing for the game. Yeah, I think so too. I think I said to someone the other day that, you know, if you can save time using things like AI and use it with your clients, then you're going to win. If you go and spend it on the golf course, more power to you, but of course. But um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's no amount of AI that's fixing my golf swing, I'll tell you that now. Exactly. Mine neither at this late stage in my life. I think you just touched on a bit of it there, but you know, your coaching really does emphasize the emotional intelligence and client relationships side of things instead of just the technical skills, which is a bit different to a lot of coaches out there. Why do you feel that EQ is so critical to real estate compared to maybe some other industries? Because the IQ piece is very binary. The house either sells or it doesn't. That's it. It either sells or it does not sell. We're all bound by legislation as well, right? So in each state, they've got their own bits of legislation and we're all bound by that and we all have to play to those rules and the transactional piece of the game is the same. It doesn't matter what brand colors you're wearing and all that sort of jazz and however much you want to fluff it up, everyone gets pictures, most people get video, it all goes online and then you show people through the home and then your house gets up. That's the basic transaction. If people want to actually set themselves apart, This is the amazing thing. It's not actually that hard. I know I'm not God's gift, right? But what I can see is some incredible opportunities to be able to demonstrate a level of discernible value beyond the transaction. And that's the critical piece. There's the fluffy value that everyone offers, that everyone thinks is going to set them apart, but it doesn't. And then there's the actual tangible, discernible value beyond the transaction that is quite easy to highlight and demonstrate and replicate over a number of transactions because it's not like it's any less efficient that will put people above, and I'm a little bit of bro science here, above like around, I'd think to be about 80% of the industry that operates on a transactional level only. Then to get into that top 20%, which if you think about it, if you transfer your capabilities from being in the 80% of also runs that always constantly whinge about getting beat on commission and so on and so forth, into that top 20% where you know and can confidently articulate the value that you bring beyond the transaction, there will be no doubt left in a vendor or in a consumer's mind as to who they need to go with in order to protect and enhance the value of their biggest asset. So that's what I like to focus on, the what of the transaction. There are umpteen number of trainers that can tell you what you need to do, right? But I don't like repeating myself. And I'd love to talk more about how and why you need to do these things. Because I think a lot of the industry, let's face it, Sam, I reckon almost everybody knows what to do, right? Is that fair? I think that's fair. And everybody knows what to do. But if agents could understand to a greater extent how and why they need to do what they do, 
then the ability to be able to articulate that and be able to explain it to the consumer in a way that makes it relevant for them and the purpose that they're selling in the first place, that's the only value that these consumers are looking for. Because let's face it, if all they wanted to do was a transaction, they could always do it themselves. So it's not the transaction that they're after. It's the other stuff. It's the uncertainty of the whole thing that's completely frying their brains. And that's the stuff that we need to focus on way more than some script and dialogue. Now, I'm not knocking scripts and dialogues. They are amazing, but we need to help as coaches. We need to help agents understand why those scripts work. Because if we do that and we explain the psychology of it all and the brain mechanics and chemicals and so on and so forth, then they're going to understand to a much greater extent when they need to use it as well. So it makes it a whole much more powerful game. Yeah. I think just rewind, like you said, a lot of things there which we could unpack over time. How much time you got? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I really like the idea of protect and enhance. Like the job description is protect and enhance, not sell houses, because I'm going through the same thing at the moment, selling mm. my house. Yep. And I actually did hear the other day that the house will sell. The house will sell. That's fine. But it's not the feeling I want to be left with. No, you know. it's not because the house will sell. There's always going to be a buyer. It doesn't matter what house it is. It doesn't matter whether it's an absolute hole in the middle of nowhere or the absolute palace in bloody wherever. There's always going to be a buyer. So it's always going to sell. And that's not what people look for. I'm the same. I just sold my place as well. So we're in the similar boat. And my concern wasn't the thing selling. It was what my agent was doing in order to protect protect my interests and enhance my position when trying to maximize the value of my biggest asset. End of. And that is the very definition of emotional intelligence, isn't it? Being able to sort of take the other person's feelings, consider it. Like I'm not saying get down in the weeds with everyone who is uh-huh. going through a sale because we all are selling for various emotional reasons of our own. Yeah, That's not what I'm saying, but it definitely is more about the feeling of you've got my back. You're spot on. And that's where I think, I think what you've just said there is probably the biggest mistake or the biggest misinterpretation, I think it's a better word, when it comes to emotional intelligence. Whenever you hear the word emotional, people think it's psychologists and the world's smallest violins and, and all those sorts of things, right? But realistically, there is an obscene amount of practicality around the use of emotional intelligence that if people could see the wood for the trees with that, I talk about emotional intelligence because it increases probability of success. It's not because it makes you feel better. It's not because you want to be a better person or a nice guy or any of that sort of nonsense. It just actually increases your probability of success. If you can utilize your emotional intelligence to really dial in and understand the Rubik's Cube of emotions that are going on in a vendor's mind, be able to fix that Rubik's Cube so it actually looks a little bit more straightforward for them, then you're laughing. You are, and you're going to have a loyalty with your client base unlike anybody else. And the fees are going to be an afterthought. Yeah. I think the other thing that you just said too, I mean, you mentioned scripts and dialogues and they're one of my pets sort of, you know, especially when they're used on me, people should know not to use scripts and dialogues on me at least anyway. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the interesting thing is I do think for, you know, probably new agents, but What I'm hearing more these days is that your tonality in using these things is more important. What do you think? Do you think that scripts actually maybe do have still have a place or do you reckon just throw them out with the cornflakes box? 
I was a massive enemy. I hated scripts and dialogues for a long time when I was an agent, but I do believe now, uh, now I've got a few more gray hairs in my beard, that I think scripts and dialogues have a place. But like I said just briefly before, I think that the way in which we provide these scripts and dialogues to the industry, that needs to change. That's the bit that goes wrong, in my opinion. The scripts and the dialogues, they can offer a tremendous foundation from which agents can formulate their own version of. But they can only formulate their own version of and make it true to who they are and authentic and all of those cliche words if they understand the mechanics as to why that script is important. All right. So when I'm talking with my clients, I don't necessarily talk about specific scripts and dialogues, but there'll be certain sentences and lines and conversations that I will coach them through because I will explain to them the mechanics, the human mechanics that are going on behind it. And then they go, right, so that's why I need to say that. Yes. And then they go away and they put it into their own vernacular. Just regurgitating script, yes, that is a whole load of crap. But understanding the mechanics as to why allows them to then put it into their own terminology, which then makes it work. Yeah, look, I think if I hear are you buying or browsing one more time in my life, you know, like... <laughs> are you buying or browsing? Yes, buying or browsing. Interesting, yeah, yeah. very 90s. Yeah, one of these days I'm going to do an overused scripts list. But <laughs> you mentioned coaching then, and that's primarily what you're doing now. So I'm keen to sort of understand, you know, like what does a typical coaching engagement look like? Like let's just say I've come to you and I'm, I'm like, Andy, I'm doing 50 properties a year and I want to do more. How would you assess my strengths and the opportunities for improvement? And like what's your process when you take on a new client? I love role plays. One of the first things that I do with all my clients is I will get them to run through a listing presentation with me. And I don't know why I have this innate ability to be able to put myself into vendor, into consumer mindset and treat the whole thing as if I wasn't a coach, but I was just Joe consumer. And I act like a very good simulator in that regard. And then I make sure that before we start, I tell them that we ain't stopping. If you stop and you start fluffing and laughing and giggling because it's all dead awkward, then I'm just going to look at you like you're a weirdo, okay? (laughs) So you need to sort yourself out with that one because we ain't stopping until you've sorted yourself out. And then we go through the whole thing and then I provide, and then that helps me do a couple of things. One, there'll be some low-hanging fruit that will be able to help them convert better and really help them to distinguish themselves as an authority or a lot, like really, really quickly. But then as well as that, it helps to give me a bit of an insight as to how much these people actually know. So if you're doing 50 transactions, Sam, it's clear that you're good at stuff. You clearly know what you're doing in a sense. But in order to know how to get you to where you want to get to, I need to know where you've come from. And when you're talking about that SWOT analysis, that strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, in a listing presentation, I can find out a whole heap of that in that listing presentation whether it is tonality, like you said, whether it is vernacular, whether it is comfort levels when being challenged, because everybody's good at their plan A. It's like interviewing, right? Everybody's good at a first interview. Anybody can give a first interview, right? But throw a curveball and see how much you really know. See how confident you really are in what you know, right? See how tuned in you can become in order to be able to hit that one out of the park. 
And that's where we can have some fun. And then from there, I really look at their structures and whatnot. And one of the other key things that a lot of people in that 50 home bracket, their biggest challenge is time and knowing when to take that leap of faith and get an assistant and so on and so forth. I do feel that there are a lot of people at that 50 property level that have probably still will have some gaps of time that they will be able to utilize. But I don't tell people to wait to your capacity before you take on an assistant because you're never going to be able to onboard them well enough. It'll just be a disaster. You're going to need to take them on at an 80, 85% capacity in order to give you that 15% lead in for when you really need them. So we talk about that and then we talk about how, you know, that trajectory of growth and really when that, that next move needs to be. But honestly, Sam, I actually really enjoy working with newbies. I love working with newbies. I love it. There's nothing that makes me happier than seeing a 21-year-old beat a director in a listing presentation, right? It just, I don't know. I love working with new people in the game man, because there are so many easy things that can be done that can advance them a lot quicker without being shady and chunky and whatnot. Yeah, I guess I'd- there's no bad habits to correct or anything like that, is there? Totally. It's like... So, oh, look, <laughs> there might be plenty of bad habits, but that's a personal thing, right? But yeah, in terms of their professional habits, depending on where they've come from, what jobs they've come from determines what their habits are, which is interesting. Taxi drivers, for example, that become real estate agents, depending on whether they are an Uber driver or a taxi driver, will determine how conversational they are, for example. And as a result of that, I have an idea as to what I need to do. So taxi drivers, they're very factual. That's all they do. They just get you from A to B. They're very factual, all right? But the Uber drivers, they know that they've got to engage or converse or do something in order to keep their star ratings up, right? So you kind of think, right, they're Uber drivers, then maybe they've got a little bit more about them from a human engagement point of view, but they're clearly driven not just by the money, but by that star rating as well, which means that they've got a bit of an ego attachment to their capabilities. So it's interesting. Right? You know, you look at the background and then you can get a bit more of a sense as to what keys you need to unlock them. That is super interesting, actually, because, you know, like if people are used to being, well, you get rated all the time in real estate, don't you? Whether it's Google reviews or Facebook reviews or someone commenting on your Instagram post or whatever. So, you know, it's probably people that are used to being rated would probably do quite well in real estate. They would, but Again, it's coming back to my thing about high performance, right? If all you're worried about is your rating and your success of, around that rating, I don't know how happy you're likely to be, right? And there's a fine balance with that. But you spot on those people that come from uh, service-based jobs where there are public ratings of some description, then they're probably going to have a little bit of a thicker skin to be able to handle the job. Yeah. So let's picture now that I am a new agent mm. and I've done three transactions in my first month. And they're nothing for three months. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get PTSD. (laughs) But now I'm coming to you and I'm saying, Andy, I don't know what to do. How do I turn it around? I guess this is my way of asking you the question of what advice would you give your younger self now? There's a hell of a lot of mistakes that I made in that first stint, like loads. And I think the main one, was that I used to be obsessed with chaos. Like I used to hate structure, hated it. And that's why I love working in bars because it's just chaos, right? Working in a late night vodka bar in the middle of London, man, it doesn't get much more chaotic than that. And what I really, really came to understand is that unless I have some sort of process, just even a vague one, 
then there's no way of knowing if I'm actually getting any closer towards anything of any degree of any success. Right? There's just no chance, no way of knowing. So even I understood that there needs to be a certain degree of order to the chaos that I want to have in my life, right? It gets me going. So that would be the first one, because if you can follow a vague process of something, it doesn't have to be super regimented either. As long as you've got some sort of map that you are heading along, then you'll be able to feel progress with what you are doing, okay? And the other thing, and I think one of the big things is when a new agent gets their first listing, that's it. That's it. That's their world. That's They've got their listing and, oh, yeah, geez, this is super exciting. And they spend their life dedicated to this first listing. And that's the next lesson that comes along real fast is that if you spend all, your whole time focusing on that one bit of business or the success that you have now, then it won't last very long. And so that was probably the second thing that I would tell myself is that, yes, it's great that you're doing well now. But you need to make sure you're going to do well down the track as well. So don't get too high on your own supply here, mate. Make sure that you're covering yourself for, for what's to come. The third thing is I always work in, in three-month cycles. I think we can learn so much from farmers. I know everyone talks about farming from a prospecting point of view. I don't know if you've ever actually talked to many farmers, Sam. But I know a really, really good Italian one down in here. He's got a fruit and veg farm. And I just got a bit of an understanding from him as to the mechanics of how he works out, what's going to go in what field and all this sort of stuff. Tell you what, the real estate space can learn a hell of a lot from those farmers. Like, it's just insane the level of awareness and intuition that they use because of weather and season and blah, blah, blah. Wow. Like, if you could scrub them up, geez, they'd be world beaters. That's a wonderful analogy, actually, because... If you want to sow something, if you want to reap something, you've got to sow it three months earlier. Oh, so much. Oh, big time. Hunting is dead. Hunting is dead in this game. You can't hunt. Hunting is gone. And the reason why it's gone is because if you're trying to hunt a deer back in the day, you might get something. But now deers have got computers and they've got this thing called Google, which can call out bullshit within about five seconds. So hunting is dead. You can't. If you go out there with a hunting mentality, you're in a transactional mentality. And if you're in transactional mentality, or you'll be at the mercy of your phone forever. And that is not healthy. So if you want sustainability in your career and in your business, you've got to be a farmer and you've always got to work a season ahead, which is kind of like ties in with one of your early questions. What am I thinking? How am I planning on working the rest of this year? I'm not planning on working the rest of this year. It's there. It's here. I'm planning on March, April. And how that's going to look, right? I'm looking at the courses that I'm going to bring out and things like that and what I'm launching in February, March, April, May. Because I have to. That's what any good business should do. Yeah. And I think the analogy goes even further than that with, you know, the soil and things like that. Like what you put into the, you know, yeah, it's a wonderful analogy. I feel an article in that somewhere. Big time, big time, big time, big time. It's it's all the environment. It's the nurturing. You, You sow the seeds in your prospecting. You nurture it by giving it all the right environment, conditions, so on and so forth, because you know that you're not going to be able to plant a seed with a potential vendor on a door knock and then list them tomorrow. Ain't going to happen. Yeah. And then the grass is always greener where you water it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, there'll be other farms that look really enticing. They've got all this fruit under the sun. But by the time you get there, all that fruit's going to get picked anyway. So, you know, focus on your own damn field. Yeah. No, that's really good advice. One more question is, We did mention Christmas at the top of the show. Mm. And now that we're sort of getting to that pointy end of the year, I always start asking people for their predictions for 2024. 
Mm-hmm. And also, have you been naughty or nice? And <laughs> what are you asking for from the big fella? Okay, so predictions for 2024 are that I think that inflation's not going to come down enough, not that I'm a chief economist or anything, for us to avoid another rate rise, sort of February, March time, I maybe. But I think that we all need to focus more on what we can control and less on what we can't. So those agents that are successful are going to be the ones that really nail their vendor communication and collaboration processes. I don't like using the word vendor management because I don't like people to dictate to people in their own homes. Campaign management, certainly, the logistics. But vendor collaboration and communication strategies are where it's at for the first part of next year. If you get that right, you'll be fine. You'll be absolutely fine. Have I been naughty or nice? Depends who you ask. (laughs) Depends who you ask. I've got into a legal punch on. I've started afresh on the relationship front. Yeah, I've done a couple of out-of-the-box sort of things myself. I like to think I've been a a good guy, but the transition is I've learned that being a nice guy is no good. You need to be a good human. And I think I've perhaps been too much of a nice guy and not enough of a good human in the past. And a good human is the ones that can remove their ego in order to say what needs to be said. They remove that fear of, having their ego damaged as a result of any repercussions of actions that are good in nature. So hopefully I can be more of a good human next year. And what have I asked from Santa? There was a bit of me that wanted an electric guitar. Honestly, though, and this is going to sound so cheesy, so cheesy, I just want my kids to be happy, man. Like They've been through a lot, Like not just with things that be going on with my personal life, but they've copped a hell of a lot over the last 18 months. So if I can see some smiles on the dials of the two most important people to me, yeah, that'll be a big enough present for me. Well, Andy, it's been wonderful to have you on the show and I wish you all the luck and success with your new show that's coming out on Monday. We'll leave some links to the show in the show notes, but there is one question I always like to leave everyone with after thanking them very much for sharing their wisdom on my show. And that is, if you would like to leave our listeners with one tip or one piece of actionable advice or something to remember going into 2024, what would that be? Be a good human and not a nice guy. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I hate it when agents talk about having to deliver bad news or avoiding bad news. Being a good human isn't about delivering bad news. Being a good human is about delivering the news that allows people to move forward, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. If doctors weren't good humans, if they were just nice people, there'd be a load of people walking around being very ill and not knowing. So... Be a good human, not a nice person. Yeah, great advice. Andy Reid, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elevate podcast. With thanks to Connect Now. To stay in touch with all things Elite Agent, sign up for our daily newsletter, The Brief, at eliteagent.com slash subscribe. 